Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. It's a particularly cruel way to kill someone because you can administer it slowly over a long period of time and it looks like something else. It doesn't look like poisoning. So initially, stomach ulcers, chronic flu symptoms, that then became paralysis. It eventually will send you blind, but it also sent people mad. After World War II, Sydney experienced a crime wave and it was women who were the perpetrators. The household poison thallium, normally used to kill rats, was the murder weapon to kill husbands and other inconvenient family members. Unlike arsenic or cyanide, thallium is colourless, odourless and tasteless. Victims were misdiagnosed as insane malingerers or ill due to other reasons. Dr Tanya Bretherton has delved into these cases of these women and the ways and reasons why they committed their deeds for her book, The Husband Poisoner. It's called The Husband Poisoner, Suburban Women Who Killed in Post-World War II Sydney. So why this particular period of time? What was it about this time that saw a number of very high-profile cases of women poisoning their husbands or even multiple men? There's probably two ways to answer that. The first one is that it was convenience. So in New South Wales at the time, we had the availability of a poison that was easy to get, cheap. So it was a a heavy metal called thallium, which was commercially produced as a product called thalrat. And it was pushed hard by the local councils because we had a vermin problem in Sydney at the time. So for people that (laughs) were were looking for a very convenient and easy way to get rid of people, Thalrat provided a solution because it was tasteless, it was odourless, it was colourless, so you could add it to food very easily. So for women who were looking for a way to eliminate people quietly, women in the post-war era in the 50s were the carers and were the managers of households. So they were the household cooks. So it was a very easy way to get rid of people if that was your your thing. So Tanya, with poison, obviously some poisons are undetectable or it's very hard to actually pinpoint that it's poisoning that kills someone. 
what was it about this poison thallium? What does it do to the people that are given it? One of the tricky things, I think, initially is because the police had never been confronted with this before, they didn't know how to test for it. So some fantastic work was done by the Office of the Government Analyst, which was sort of the government laboratories, in terms of working out how to test for the presence of thallium in the body and what represented a toxic amount as well. But in terms of its effectiveness as you know, a method of murder, it's a particularly cruel way to kill someone because you can administer it slowly over a long period of time and it looks like something else. It doesn't look like poisoning. So initially the victims were experiencing, it looked like gastro really. People thought they just had stomach ulcers or prolonged chronic kind of flu symptoms that they couldn't get rid of. That then became paralysis. It eventually will send you blind, but it also sent people mad. And because the 50s, the era being what it was, there was a lot of stigma around mental illness. And that, I think, prevented people getting the help that they could have had because people didn't want to talk about the fact that people were were suffering delusions. And what was it about the particular time? This is post-war, men have been to war, they're coming back. What was it about this particular time in Australia's society that prompted these, you know, suburban housewife poisonings? I think what's interesting about the cases that I've looked at in the book is that it covers a lot of really diverse reasons why women chose, one, to kind of kill people that weren't convenient and also to go about it this way. If we look at one case, I guess the the case that a lot of people know is Yvonne Fletcher. And I think her case incorporates a lot of the elements of that post-war era that we think of as being part of women as poisoners. So in the post-war era, she was in a really unhappy marriage. She'd supported herself and her two kids throughout World War II by working in a box factory. When all of the men returned home from war, all of the women in that factory were displaced from that work and they weren't allowed to continue working part-time. So part-time work for women, they were considered to be unreliable if you were a married woman and that you were working. So she was out of work. She was in a very unhappy marriage and her second marriage was abusive. So she even took the step of going to the police to try and report her husband, which was something that very few women did at the time. And the police fobbed her off and divorce was not an easy thing to obtain. So they were a working class family as well. They weren't moneyed. Yeah, she was in a she was in a tough spot. So what did she actually do? Did she kill her husband or? She did. She killed her first husband, then remarried and killed her second husband. So her first husband, it was a very unhappy marriage. She couldn't extricate herself from it. But then the second husband was really abusive. And so the first husband, she she killed over kind of quite a long period of time. And the book goes into quite a lot of detail about how she went about it. And her husband ended up in Callan Park because he was diagnosed with depression and delusion and psychosis. But her second husband, she killed very quickly because he was abusing her, but also her two kids. 
And it was really that second murder that sort of everyone worked out what was going on as a result of that because she'd been in the same house. All the neighbours had observed similar symptoms and a similar decline in the two husbands. And yeah, the cat was out of the bag then. The police were on to her. So how did it play out that the police got onto her? Was it a neighbour that raised the alarm or how did that investigation play out? There'd been a lot of rumours about her first husband. So the police very quickly built sort of a circumstantial case to begin with based on neighbour testimonies and also her second husband who died very quickly in RPA Hospital in Newtown, had heard the rumours as well about her first husband. So he, in fact, had a conversation with his sister. And, yeah, from that point on, the case moved forward very quickly. Now, this story was lapped up by the media. The newspapers covered this heavily. What was the media coverage like from your research that you used for the book? It was a really big media deal. So there's three cases that I look at in detail. Yvonne Fletcher's in Newtown. A woman called Caroline Grills was charged within sort of the same 12-month period for attempting to kill many members of her family. And a third case, which sort of involved the ride area. And all three of those cases got a huge amount of media coverage I think the public was fascinated with the female poisoner archetype, but I also think there was a a heck of a lot of scandal around some of these cases. So the third case that a lot of people in Sydney know about was uh, the attempted murder of Veronica Monty of her son-in-law. The son-in-law's name was Bobby Lullum, and he was a rising star within the rugby league. She was having an affair with her son-in-law, but uh, she attempted to kill him with thallium. And a lot of people knew that case, huge media coverage over it as well. So tell us a bit more about that case, because I can imagine it would have had very salacious headlines and a you know woman having an affair with her son-in-law and a high profile one at that. That sounds like it's like the tabloid's dream. It, it absolutely was. So he was, he played for Balmain. He'd been on an international tour. Bobby Lullum's wife, she looked a little bit like Liz Taylor. So there's photos from that era that are very glamorous. Moved into a house in sort of the new kind of little middle class area around Ride and Gladesville. Very soon after, Bobby's mother-in-law moved in with them. So she had sort of a marital breakdown and moved in with them. And within months, started an affair with her son-in-law. It's not really clear why things unfolded or why Veronica made the choice to try to murder Bobby. We don't really know. I don't think she was particularly mentally that stable. But, yeah, she fed him Milo at night. So she she would make her daughter and son-in-law a nightly Milo and she slipped some thallium crystals into it and he started to get very sick very quickly. What was the age difference with Veronica and Bobby? She was in her late 40s, early 50s, and he was in his 20s. It was a big scandal. How was it detected that she was actually poisoning him? Well, this is the strange thing, is that she, you know how in bad telly movies, (laughs) people will clip things out of the newspaper and send anonymous letters so they might send a, you know, a ransom note that's been used by clipping headlines 
and assembling words so that you can't detect who is the, you know, the author of the note. She started sending notes to the homicide detectives at CIB saying, Bobby Lullum at this address, spelled out, is being poisoned with thallium. Isn't that curious? It's weird. It's probably the most bizarre case that's in the book because we just won't ever really know what on earth was going on there because they'd already had Yvonne Fletcher's case had already gone through the court system. Yvonne was already in jail. Caroline Grills, the second quite sort of famous thallium killer, her case had already been processed. So the police turned up at Lullum's house, pretty much worked out straight away based on his symptoms like okay, yes, this guy definitely looks like he's being poisoned by thallium. And what sentence did Yvonne and Veronica get? Well, Yvonne ended up in prison, as did Carolyn. Carolyn actually died in prison and Yvonne was released eventually. But Veronica actually got off. So she claimed that she had intended to poison herself and it had been accidental. And she was acquitted. And the interesting thing about that case is the media coverage about it went on for so long. So when Veronica was acquitted, it didn't end there because then, of course, she then had a divorce case because her husband, after all of this had come out, she was still married at that point. He petitioned for divorce and Veronica's daughter petitioned for divorce from Bobby Lullum. Divorce cases were as scandalous as murder cases at the time. So all of that was in the media as well. So what ended up happening to Veronica and Bobby? Like, what, you know, were they followed by the media or how did they end up? Well, he wasn't from Sydney. He was from a smaller country town. And the health problems that resulted from thallium poisoning for him, it ended his career. And he sort of returned to private life. It was sort of the end of his public life. Veronica obviously moved out of that house. <laughs> I think she and her daughter did maintain a relationship as complex as that was, but Veronica ended up working for a hotel, trying to rebuild a life, uh, working as a barmaid in a hotel, and she ultimately ended up committing suicide a period of time later, not using thallium, interestingly. She shot herself. God, it sounds like there's so many things at play, like, you know, you were mentioning how women had jobs during World War II, and I often think of that time for women where they just were experiencing this amazing amount of independence and, you know, being able to work and being able to contribute in that way, and then as soon as the men came back, it was like, yep, we don't need you anymore, and I always wonder how I would feel if I was living during those times, so what was your overall picture about the general conditions for women in Sydney during that time, if you weren't obviously rich or had means of your own? I mean, women worked, didn't they? It just wouldn't have been married women didn't work. No, that's right. And they weren't paid very well. Look, I've thought a lot about this, uh, you know, obviously because I, I do a lot of research for the books. And for women, life was about marriage home and children. And I think for women that wanted that, that was fine. But a lot of women 
didn't want just that. And I think that's where the complication came, certainly for some of the women that are featured um, as characters within these stories. Let's go back to Caroline Grills because she is one of the, as you say, most notorious women poisoners. Tell us a little bit about her story. Yeah, she's, her case is really, really interesting because when we think of the archetype of the woman poisoner, I think we think a little bit more of Yvonne's situation. You know, they were pushed too far. They were in a difficult, a, hot, a bad marriage. Financially, they were strapped. Carolyn's case was a little bit more complex because she attempted to kill a lot of people in her family all indirectly related to her, if that makes sense. So they were often people that were related by marriage. The first person that she killed was her stepmother. So in some of those murders and attempted murders, she benefited financially very directly. So she was the sole beneficiary in in a will in, in one case. In another case, her husband outright got the estate from a murder that she brought about. So there was financial gain definitely in the beginning. In fact, most of the early murders that did occur because she could financially gain from them. Then I think it became about something else. So she clearly had a lot of very complicated relationships within her family. The transcripts kind of paint her as someone who wasn't particularly well accepted within her family and that people thought of her a little bit as a joke. So she was a a figure of ridicule amongst some family members and she certainly bumped people off who, you know, made cracks about her. I mean, that certainly came up um, at trial. So I I think it started as, as something financial and then it became about sort of almost power broking within her family. So they were like strategic killings, but reorganising the family in a way that that was more to her liking. I'm looking at, as we're speaking, an old newspaper article on Trove of an illustration of Caroline, and she looks like something out of Miss Marple or something or Agatha Christie. Oh, absolutely. What was she like? Like what did she look like, you know? She did. She was a little, round, grandmotherly-looking lady who wore really round glasses and little little hats but with netting across the front, support hose. She was quite short and she had a lot of problems with her knees and ankles, so she sort of walked with a hobble. So she was the least intimidating character that you, that you could imagine. Very sweet looking actually. It's always fascinating. It feels like it's a, you know, British murder mystery or something looking at this picture of her. Yeah, absolutely. And and strangely she was obsessed the the other thing about the post-war era that was interesting is that we had a whole wave of crime movies coming out of Hollywood and a lot of them featured women killers. So that sort of femme fatale thing that we that we know about women in film that kind of started in that era and Caroline was obsessed with them so make of that what you will so how many people did she actually end up killing the hard part is that there were cases where she was never formally charged but it it's deeply suspicious so it's between seven and eight that she attempted. Wow, so that's serial killing. She is regarded. See, I don't know more modern crime, but certainly up to that point in time, she was Australia's worst female serial killer. 
But I, I don't follow modern crime. There may be women that have done other things since. You like your historic crime. Yes, I like a nice buffer between. <laughs> yeah. So what happened to Caroline? What What was her sentence? Uh, she ended up in prison and actually died in prison. Strangely, it's another one of those things where, you know, fact is a little bit stranger than fiction, but she died of a stomach issue. Yeah. Karma or something. Yeah, that's right. I th- think her symptoms were probably quite similar to, so it's like an infection in the stomach. After the break, Tanya tells us about why and how the easy availability of thallium was stopped. Post-World War II, you could buy thallium anywhere. It was a murder weapon on the shelves. Tanya tells us what happened after the spate of high-profile poisoning cases. It really was these three cases that I think brought about the change. And the only reason that the three cases happened, kind of were allowed to unfold, is because they happened in a really short period of time. So Yvonne's first murder was sort of 47, 48, as was Carolyn's, but then wasn't discovered really until about 1952. And then 52, 53, 54, that was when Veronica's murders and so forth occurred. So it, it, it really was sort of all of these cases that contributed to a lot more regulation around the sale of poisons in general because really before when uh, the women were going in and purchasing these things, in fact, some councils were even giving away thallium because they wanted members of the public, you know, being on the front foot about, addressing the vermin problem in Sydney. But you could really buy it anywhere. So hardware stores, your local grocery, pharmacists had special promotions on the counter for it. So it was very easy to get, but it was really after these sort of three cases that, yeah, the government went, uh, no, we can't allow this to continue. So then what happened? How could you buy this kind of poison if you needed to use it for your rats? Well, you still could buy it, but a record was kept of all of the sales. So you had to give your name, address, provide ID, that kind of stuff so that you could buy it, but they were going to find out pretty quickly that you'd been the purchaser of it. And in fact, there was a case that occurred, a husband attempted to uh, kill his wife using thallium. And it was after the new legislation had been introduced. And as soon as she presented with symptoms, they very quickly worked out who was responsible for it because he'd been gone in. He'd been the one to go in and buy it. It's a bit like when they go into Bunnings to buy like duct tape, tarpaulin, you know, I don't know. The serial killer starter kit, as they say. It's a bit like, yeah, that's very obvious, mate. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) So. We've spoken about some of the reasons why these women killed. The motives were, you know, to get out of a terrible situation, as we saw with Yvonne Fletcher. And then there's some avarice, some greed in the case of Caroline Grills. What were some of the other motives that you discovered from the cases that you wrote about? There was a case that occurred just after Yvonne Fletcher's the male police officers who were responsible really for a lot of the thallium prosecutions in New South Wales, 
they pursued that case in a country town in New South Wales. They pursued that case in a very similar way, using the same kind of mode of investigation that they had pursued with Yvonne. It was a woman that wasn't happy in a particular family circumstance. She was uh, attempting to murder her prospective son-in-law. So her daughter was engaged to a guy she didn't like. That case was not successful. And in fact, to this day, we actually don't know. They were thallium murders, but we actually don't know who was responsible. Mm. And so did you write about any cases where women killed their own children with poison? It's as horrible as it is to imagine, but we do know that's happened in the past. I did cover parents poisoning children in the second book that I wrote because it was happening a lot in the Edwardian era. And why was that particularly in that era? Big families. If either of the parents in the in the case that I looked at within that book, if there was instability in the family, I'm trying to because they kind of didn't use the language, but basically if there was a mental illness present within the family and unemployment. So if you've got someone who's not who's suffering kind of depression, even though it wasn't called that at the time, and then the husband in most cases, because they were male breadwinner families then, the husband lost his job, they were screwed. Um, And in those cases, that was a very common set of preconditions to parents poisoning their kids. What are the other books you've written? They're always big picture and little picture told in the same book, if that makes sense. So I'll pick an era and the story will start with a true crime event and then it sort of rolls on from there. So the first one was about the 1920s in Sydney, about an infanticide case. The second one was a murder-suicide in the Edwardian period in Newtown in Sydney. The third one was about the concept of serial killing in the 1930s. And I look at a span of about 20 years, some very similar, very public sex crimes committed against women from about the 30s up until the late 1940s. And this one is the post-war era. And you've, you've covered a number of cases in the book. So clearly there was no shortage of being able to find them. What was the time period you particularly focused on from what year to what year? Uh, it was really 1947. It was the late 40s until sort of the mid-1950s because that was really when all of the thallium stuff went crazy within Sydney. And it's interesting because I'm a researcher in, you know, I've got a full-time job. I'm a researcher in another life. I've always come across cases when I've been journeying somewhere else, if that makes sense. So the case I looked at infanticide, I was looking at the history of adoption legislation in New South Wales. And I came across a case of a woman who had thrown her child into the harbour because it was pre-adoption legislation. So they've all been cases that I've sort of stumbled on accidentally. You know, there's been a sufficient set of resources to get a really good book out of it. I'd covered infanticide, I'd covered women as victims, and I'd covered a murder-suicide. The one that had really, to me, had been missing in terms of the gender crime, because that's kind of where I, I, the space that I write in, the archetype that hadn't been covered was female poisoners. So I actually went looking. This is the first book where I thought, I, I think it'd be really interesting to write in that space, because it's women as killers as well. And 
started looking. I didn't know anything really about the thallium poisonings in Sydney in the in the post-war era. Discovered them out at the archives, and I, I couldn't believe the jackpot of stuff that that I found. You think, well, how would it get reported today? I mean, I suggest it wouldn't get reported much differently in terms of the the headlines and sensationalism, but of course now we've got social media. I absolutely think you're spot on. The reporting would be very similar because at the time it was all about women being sneaky, women being deceptive, women plotting and scheming, you know, as as a way to bring about, and, and that. That's kind of how stuff is written about these cases today. Was there any case that wasn't as well known, but you thought, wow, this is so fascinating and disturbing? Was there one that, as a researcher, really hooked into you? The thing that probably fascinated me most about thallium use in New South Wales was not a criminal case. It was the fact that thallium was being used in a medical context and had been used for years and that in fact been a child death because of thallium's use. So thallium was something on a prescription basis that doctors or specialists, skin specialists, would give to parents to give to children so their hair would fall out because we had a ringworm crisis in New South Wales. And the way that they treated ringworm at the time was to basically X-ray you X-ray you to the point, if you were a kid, they'd X-ray you to the point where your hair would fall out. That would allow you to then have access to the site on the scalp because that was often, you know, where it was hard to, to apply topical creams. Get all the hair to fall out, get the ring wound cream on, and that was how they would treat it. X- X-ray machines were expensive there wasn't really much regard for the fact that it wasn't terribly good for you either, but it was an expensive piece of equipment to use for the healthcare of children. So they started prescribing thallium and, in fact, a child had died with all of the horrible symptoms that are described in these later murders and at inquest it was disregarded. It was, well, he, he had a rare allergy in most cases, we use this all the time for kids. Let's continue doing it. That was the sort of stuff that surprised me. And thallium was also used in a lot of beauty products in America, and I talk a lot about that as well. And a similar thing happened. Women were sent blind. Oh, my God. It's like horrible histories I used to watch with my kids and they'd talk about the lead makeup or the belladonna makeup or something. Yep. So they would put thallium, was, it, your hair falls out. That's another symptom of it. So it was put in a lot of beauty products in the US more than here, but the women presented with it and women died as a result because it was also that era where women were wearing shorter fashions, showing a little bit of knee, exposing a bit more arm. They wanted to be able to remove hair a lot more quickly and easily. And women were using it on their eyebrows as well and it sent them blind. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Yeah. Oh, just so much we just didn't understand when we're using these kind of things. What's next for you, Tanya, on your what's your next true crime kind of jag that you're going to write about? I always have multiple things on the boil at one time because I do a lot of history research so it's never just one. But I've got a particular interest in a few baby farming cases. I'm looking at that. So that's possible that will be the next one. 
Mm, yeah, and that's quite for the listeners. That is about people who would take in babies claiming they would look after them, but then they would say to the, the parent, oh, your baby died, isn't it? Yeah, and it was usually for money. It occurred in the era when there was a lot of stigma around unwed mothers. So they were often people that volunteered their children, thinking that it was giving them an opportunity for a better life, yeah, and paying a fee for it. And, uh, yeah, the the children were, were just murdered. You're a researcher, you're a historian, you focus on particular issues and you know a lot about like what it was like for women back when you've written this book, The Husband Poisoner. Are there things that are still the same for women in modern day that, that you think about a lot? Are the changes sufficient enough that we have a better life? You know, what, what kind of things do you think about as a researcher and a woman when you write about this stuff? Do you know what is so upsetting, I think, as, as a woman and what I find most upsetting is that with each of these books, so I've looked at infanticide, I looked at murder-suicide, I've looked at trying to find the right term, but sort of lust crimes, you know, so where women are attacked on a street and, you know, then they're, they're left in a very public way. What I find really chilling about it is that with each of the books, you can console yourself with the idea that this was a long time ago, the context for how women live is very different, and then there will be a case in the news that will bear an uncanny similarity to what I've been studying or looking at in a historical context. With the infanticide story, we've had some terrible discoveries of babies in suitcases, which primarily was what that first book was about, was about the disposal of children. We've had some awful public cases which occurred around the time that that book came out. The second book on murder-suicide, so it was a, a husband killing a partner and attempting to kill the children as well. We've had some horrific murder-suicides, particularly when women have tried to leave and the violence has escalated. With the third book, it looked at a, a whole series of cases of women that had been attacked. There'd been a sex crime that had occurred as well and then the women were murdered and left and we had the case of Eurydice Dixon in Melbourne. It's chilling that there is a sense of history repeating itself. Thanks to our guest Dr Tanya Bretherton. There's details on how to get her book The Husband Poisoner in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Australian True Crime made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the ACAST Creator Network.